1: Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast, and I've said it before many times that um one of the things that I, I wanted to do with the podcast was to kind of highlight key individuals in um, both in my working and my personal life, and kind of give them a platform and deserve kind of recognition or definitely at least hear their sort of story. So one of the one of the things that you all know is my kind of. Uh, uh campaign or my passion for working within the substance misuse field and um and anything kind of attributed to of it let's just say public health uh but when i joined even though i was living in handsworth and should have been kind of familiar with a lot of stuff um which i was there was still an element of what i was doing or um my knowledge wise which was a little bit naive when I got into this kind of field where uh, working with with clients and working with this area, I still needed to know a lot of the knowledge in terms of both in street, in different kind of various settings, prisons or whatever. And my guest today is one of those guys who really gave me one of those educations. Um, and he was one of the first ones where um, actually made time for me and is definitely one of my go-to people when i need to know anything um regard regarding just anything involved in substances so that's good and bad um (laughs) i'd like to just introduce to you uh tony mulaney welcome all right thanks ricky i ain't seen you for ages how you been
0: yeah i'm I'm well you know um it's been one of those uh weird couple of years hasn't it with kind of lockdown and stuff like you know yeah I've recently changed jobs so um as you know I was working in the prison for seven years before previous up till like last month and I've kind of started a new role now working in the NHS still but a totally different role back in the kind of training arena so yeah I'm okay you know carrying a bit of extra weight yeah I mean I mean like you okay. ain't
1: yeah you ain't you ain't skipping any lunches <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
1: yeah, you're, you're true, true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Tony, uh, you know, like when we met, we were at working in this um, kind of commissioned place where we were providing drug and alcohol training for a lot of third sector organisations, like police officers, GPs, and things like that. From the Tony that I met there, would you believe that this Tony that I'm interviewing right now would be would be uh, alive?
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, because I, I I was kind of a volunteer in that sector anyway when I first met you, wasn't I? Yeah. I was I like professional? I can't remember whether we'd already started uh, that charity. We were volunteering for the drug and alcohol action team. For, for I was doing stuff with them from two thousand and three. Um, I think what what year did we meet? Two thousand and eight? No, two
1: thousand nine. 2008
0: I was already in a professional role then you know delivering training and service user involvement stuff so yeah you know it's been a long journey but I'm, I'm still here. I'm still slugging along you yeah. know and over them years I've wore several different hats in the drug and alcohol treatment arena haven't I know, you know yeah
1: Tony what was a young what was a young Tony like I wanted to st- kind of start chronologically with your journey really and
0: um okay maybe, okay um, I was hard work. I was hard work, you know, um, as as you know, and everyone else knows, because I've never made any secret of it, that um I was a um a hardcore drug and alcohol user from a very early age, you know, uh, the first drug I used was heroin. I ran away from home at fifteen, I was living on the streets of London, and the first drug I used was heroin. I injected it, you know, and my life then, was a roller coaster of jails and institutions and and prescribing services and you know and i was an absolute nightmare to work with you know i wasn't one of these guys that engaged with treatment well you know um i had a doctor dr judith Yates. she kind of prescribed for my whole career you know but I, i you know i i went to rehab several times i was thrown out you know i had an air of arrogance around me and i don't know why you know Um, probably underpinned by low self-esteem, but, yeah, I I was hard work, you know? So when you... Um, I finally got myself drug and alcohol free. Sorry? No, no, I was just going to... I was going to kind of just relate back to when you first started, how you got introduced into the whole drug scene. I was age 15, and I'd I'd run away from home, and I was living on the streets of London um, during the kind of punk rock era, because I'm in my 50s, you know, and it was kind of... um, Everyone around me was kind of doing it. They were all much older. I was only a young kid, you know, and um, I wanted to rebel, and, and I got into heroin. You know, first drug I got used.
1: But fifteen to run away from home is like, you know, that's no easy decision. What was leading up to that? What was the environment around it? Because I know you, I know you had kind of like loads of experiences and being in Birmingham around. What was it? What was the atmosphere like?
0: Um. Not good at home, you know. I, I I I wasn't good at home. I was I didn't engage well at school, you know. Um, I had I was on self-destruct mode from a very young age. From a very young age, um, and I saw using drugs, especially heroin, as my kind of act of rebellion. I grew up in a very religious, strict household from Belfast, Catholic Irish descent you know and it was all very strict and we were dragged to church on a sunday morning with you know and it, 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 um, i just had i was kind of like the black sheep of the family the odd one out that's how i felt You know, the rest of my family were professionals. You know, my sister worked in banking. My other sister was a teacher. My younger brother was, uh, you know, uh, the the youngest ever manager at Rover, went on to manage at Bentley. My older brother was a manager in Birmingham City Council. And I was kind of like the lost boy of the family, you know. And, um, yeah, it was that rebellion that led me down that road, you know, of self-destruction. If you want the truth, I never planned to live past 21
1: you actually made that conscious decision
0: to say yes. Like, yes, I thought I'm going to just you, you know. And drugs gave me that the escape I needed. It gave me the escape from my inner demons, if you like. And I, and I and I just threw myself into it headlong. And no one had any hopes that I'd overdosed twice by 19, where I had to be revived, you know, in hospital settings. Um, I was chaotic, I, you know. I didn't care about myself. I would inject with water out of toilet bowls, out of puddles in the street. You know, I had no value on my own life. So, you,
1: and, and like from the, I like from like a method of choice in terms of like how you've been using, uh, using heroin, it would be injecting, right? And, injecting. and so like one of the most common ways that people carry on whatever, me- the method that someone gets taught to be using drugs is, is 90% the, 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 well, not 90 I don't know exactly, but I know it's very, very high probability that that's how they carry on and teach others.
0: That's it, yes.
1: But in that culture, then, was injecting the, the biggest thing that was happening at that time? When,
0: w- when I was young, there was only white heroin about. So it wasn't the Asian heroin hadn't started to come in, the South Asian heroin, so the Afghani, Iranian, Indian, Pakistani heroin hadn't come around, and it was all white heroin from the Golden Triangle, which doesn't smoke, everyone injected, no one smoked heroin, you know. And um, we used a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, like, you know, the diconols and the palphiums, you know, when there wasn't much heroin about, we we would um we would black doctors for drugs, you know. And my first prison sentence was for obtaining drugs by deception. You know, so um, yeah, we would we would trawl around Birmingham or the whole West Midlands doctors, and um hustling doctors for opiate-based medications that really are not available anymore. When you say
1: hustle, what does hustle mean?
0: <laughs> we would go in and we would, you know, invent a new name and we would go into the doctor and and give them a sub story, you know. Um, what we would do, we would find, me and my friends would go into the local post office and we'd get a list of the local um, GPs. Then we would pick 10, take five each, and we would go and do those five doctors in the day. It was in the days when you could just walk in and say, I need to see the doctor. And we would go in and fight until we found a sympathetic doctor. Sometimes we would see 10, 15 doctors every single day until you found one that would fall for your substory. That, you know, your life was a terrible and you know you needed help with some opiate-based medication to stop using street drugs. You know, we never kind of lied to them about pain or anything until we found sympathetic doctors. You know, and um it all caught up with me when I was about 21 and I got 12 months in HMP Birmingham for 900 prescriptions of different kinds. So it was defrauding the NHS, um, obtaining drugs by deception and possession of a class A substance. <laughs> a pharmaceutical one? Pharmaceuticals. It was, it, was, it was mainly pharmaceuticals we were using in those days and heroin was the stopgap between pharmaceutical drugs you know if we could find a bit of heroin we would use it you know um we would go to uh, my first prescription was um from a private doctor in harley street when i was 16 when i was living in london and we all did it we you know we would pay 45 pound the doctor would prescribe you a load of injury, and um you would sell half of it because it was private and then you would get you would go to the pharmacy they'd give you half on tick and then you would go go out sell a bit of it and go back and get the rest out it was and no what, NHS prescriptions.
1: And was that the environment what other users were doing? Because like
0: for, for you to, In, in
1: London, London,
0: yes. In Birmingham, no. Birmingham, it was all doing, not going and seeing, you know, just finding a sympathetic doctor and a doctor prescribing for you.
1: And you, you talked about how it was more kind of the, the street names around it was China White because of, uh, yeah. Around, around yeah. because of the Golden Triangle. So when the Asian kind of uh, let's say heroin came in was that more Yeah,
0: 84. Mm. When the fall of the of the Shah of Iran all the Iranians uh, refugees came here and they all brought that uh, the, the Afghani heroin with them and that was the explosion that happened you know and It was around the time of the minor strikes and poverty and, you know, before, you know, there was, I think there was 200 people in the West Midlands in drug treatment when I was young, you know, Birmingham alone by the 2000s had 7,000 people in treatment, didn't they, you know? So it just kind of exploded, Yeah, exploded, you know, and we've seen a lot more people. We was a very close knit, tight knit little kind of drug using community in Birmingham. We knew everyone. knew everybody and everybody knew each other and we would all help each other out and sort each other out that kind of thing you know but then but by the 80s it just blew up
1: and then how did you come back to birmingham then because if you if you're working in uh, london you had a good little operation there working um...
0: um what happened is there was a murder and it scared us all you know um where we were living in the squats in King's Cross, um, there was always violence and stuff. And and someone got chopped to death there who was involved with our little kind of using kind of cohort, if you like. And we all just kind of left London. And and one of the guys that was in our group, he's, he's around now, he got life in prison. So we Beautiful. all kind of scampered off home and, you know, scared. Young, we were 15, 16 years old, you know, well, I was, and there was a couple of us, couple of others around, you know, Late teens, early twenties, and then there was the older guys in their thirties. Yeah, but it was it was quite a, vi- a very violent kind of um, environment to live in when we were living in London, and yeah, it got a bit scary. So we a few of us came back to Birmingham and and and, and got involved with the drug user community here.
1: So you know you know uh, kind of leading up to the to the murder, obviously a very extreme number But what other kind? How of, close, and what were the, some of the kind of closer encounters that you were getting into at that time?
0: What do you mean, Closer?
1: I mean, like, from the violence and crime side, if, you, if, if you're going wow. there, I mean, you're a young lad, uh, yeah. you, and obviously you've, you've, you've seen it from a murder point of view for you to make a, a whole change in your circumstances. Yeah, yeah. But there must have been kind of a build-up towards that, and was there ever a point at that
0: point? Yeah, every day, every sense? day there was violence, because we were kind of like, we were punk rockers, so we had pink and red hair, and, you know, and we were targets of, you know... Um, Afro Caribbean youths of skinheads, and so our life was constantly hit and run. Our life was constantly hit and run. Hells Angels hated us, Teddy Boys hated us, you know. And we were this we kind of all lived in the same kind of squats. There was about 200 of us in London from all over the UK and London guys as well. And we we had to stick together, you know. We, we every concert we went to ended in a bloodbath, it was just a really violent era, you know. Uh. And then,
1: so the the murder brought you back in here. And then were you able to, when did you start? Did you ever think about operating and selling on 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 yourself in Birmingham?
0: I've always sold drugs. I always sold drugs as a young man. Before I even picked up heroin, I was selling cannabis. But Mm. I didn't smoke it. You know, because of the cool bad boy element that I thought it carried with it, I would save up money and buy an ounce of hash, chop it up and sell it to people you know, before I didn't even use it, you know, and it was just so that I belonged to something because that's what I was searching for as a, as a young man, you know, but I always sold commercial, I mean, social supply in the early days. So, you know, if I would go and hustle a doctor and he would give me 60 tablets of, of Diaconol, I would sell 30 of them, you know? So I always had my toe dipped in that pond. So I always sold drugs and, um, Fast forward a few years, I was involved in, in drug smuggling and, and, and cannabis cultivation. and, I'll get into and, and again,
1: I'm getting to that part, yeah. So, yeah, so that on, was my on.
0: journey. I always had my toe dipped in the pond of selling something, you know. And during the rave era, when the raves first started, I was selling ecstasy and um, LSD paper in nightclubs and, and, and kind of rolling in money for a period of time. And in and, and at peak, what was the most amount of money that you were earning? The most amount I was earning. So on a Friday night, I could come out of the come out of a club with like five thousand pound easy, easy. And, how, and how long um, ago was this? This was in nineteen eighty nine, ninety.
1: So five grand is
0: a yeah. lot, a lot of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. We we would, we would stay in hotels on the weekend, and have loads of girls around us, all that kind of crazy stuff, and and you know we got our, our toe dipped in the gangland pond you know in the 90s and yeah yeah um yeah we were we were kind of living it big for some little kind of drug using guys you know
1: mm. so did you get then when you went inside was that uh, was that uh, you know for a lot of let's say uh, let's say that a lay person for example would go, get locked up and that first experience would be going Oh, I you know they might be will they've been rehabilitated through prison. Did that ever thought come into your mind, or was there a
0: period where you tried (laughs) straight away though? (laughs) Prison was no deterrent. You know, I mean, prison was a lot scarier um, in those days than it is now. You know, Um, you went to prison and and it was run with a kind of rod of iron. You know, and Birmingham prison was one of the scariest prisons in the whole country. Um, My one of my cellmate in when I was in in nineteen. 86 i think um my cellmate was killed um was one of the guys that was died under restraint in in the hmp birmingham um care and separation unit the block yeah yeah it was a scary place to be but prison never offered me any kind of rehabilitation no
1: did you meet anybody inside there anyone who's gone on He's become infamous now or kind of networked in? We had
0: friends in there, you know. I never made any connections to further my career in there, you know. Um, We would come across people we already knew in there, you know. Um, Yeah, I've done uh, over the years several sentences. My first sentence was a short, sharp shock. They used to call it 12 week. And then I got 12 months for deceiving the nhs of class a drugs okay. and then i got some uh a period of time i got 4 years for conspiracy to supply cannabis and cultivation in the early 90s
1: so how old were you then when you came out your kind of your first stint and then how did, in in terms My of your first stint, i was
0: 15 16
1: yeah and then you Scary. did 12 months when you were what 21 22 early 20s early 20s so then, you know... Maybe 21. So when you started this, uh, this journey and, and your, your drug education, how then did you kind of take it to the, to the, other, the, the next level from going into being a, a regional supplier and user to be going to the international point?
0: Right. The guys that I, um, I grew cannabis with were kind of old hippies and they were already on the India trail. So they were already on the India trail, you know, and, um, and when, when I come out of prison, they then we stopped cultivating cannabis in Birmingham. Well, they did because they were, you know, they were, I was younger, in my 20s. They were in their, like, 40s and 50s. And uh, we all got done together, six of us, so we all got four years. Uh, usually for cultivating cannabis, you get 12 months, but we all got four years because it was um, a, a conspiracy. They had us all together. And they had photographs of us and stuff. It scared them guys it didn't scare me, you know. Um, I was a, a crazy kid on self-destruct. So, you know, it didn't scare me, you know. But they then went to India. They took me to India with them. They introduced me to a few people before you know it. I've got loads of contacts in India for um we were in Kashmir, we were in the Himalayas, and and for the next 10 years I spent lying on beaches in Goa, you know. Um Selling a bit of drugs here and there and smuggling drugs back here. You know. So what
1: was the what was the actual operation like?
0: Oh mate. Um, I'm gonna so... get
1: everything out of you, Tony.
0: Don't worry. <laughs> so pre-9-11, this is so you gotta remember. Um there was a firm of people in in Goa, and that I got introduced to and kind of built a relationship with, and they had the baggage handlers paid off. Delhi, Goa, and Bombay Airport. So if you say you had a kilo of heroin uh, or 12 kilos of hashish, um, they would, you would then get that professionally put into a bag. You would hand this to one guy who would then hand it. They would drive down a road somewhere. I, 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 this is what they told me. They would drop it off at a bus stop and a member of the airport staff would just pick the bag up. So you never carried a bag on a plane in India. So the, your bag would automatically get taken through customs. So it wouldn't go, go through any – the dogs wouldn't go on it. It wouldn't go through any scanning or anything like that. The bag would go on the plane. Then what happened is you knew your bag. So your plane would land at Birmingham, Gatwick, Manchester. So what we would do is if we'd fly back on – not on a scheduled flight. We'd fly back on a tourist flight, like a 2E flight or a Thompson or a Thomas Cook or, or Monarch Airline. So it would be around two-week tourists who are not really suspected of drug smuggling yeah so then we would just watch for our bag, let it go around a few times, get a few people out in front of you, and camera run it. We used to call it, pick the bag up, and just walk out, and, and, walk and, out what,
1: and then how much were you kind of like? Was there any close calls
0: oh i i i I've, I've been caught in India twice with considerable amounts of drugs you know um I got caught on the train coming from the himalayas um from Delhi to Goa with um <laughs> Twelve kilos of of cannabis and a kilo, half a kilo of heroin, um, tr- um, Pakistani white heroin. You know. Um,
1: How did you get that?
0: <laughs> always have a slush fund. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Always make know, sure you're carrying a £1,000 yeah, in cash.
1: Yeah, but, like, I'm just saying it in the politest way, Tony. Yeah, it's like, at that time, like, everyone around you is from, obviously, from South Asian kind of background, yeah? Yeah. And, like, I've been to India, and you know it yourself, that you'd be standing at, you'd be, you'd actually stand out. So, like, you'd be the
0: first person they would go after. So, did, did anything no, that... this is not true. Because if you get on that train from Delhi to Goa, yeah. there's going to be 200 white people... On that train. Oh, on that train. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, you, you know, wherever you... Oh, mate, I, 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 I could tell you some stories from up there. Go Himalayas ahead. And, just, man, just, man, just go, I could tell go you some for it. Stories. Go I for it. I remember once. Right. I, we used to go up to a place called... We used to stay in a place called Manikaram, up the Himalayas, right at the... It's the end of the road of the Parvati Valley. The Parvati Valley is where all the, all the hashes... All the plants are grown and the hashes made. And we would go up there, and then we would walk to a place called Pulga, which was 14 kilometers away from Manikaram. Pulga is where where you go and get, you know, then the next stop is Milana. The further you go up that trail, the better quality of hash, and the more expensive it'll be, you know, but still a pittance compared to this country. And we used to get Sherpas to carry out, say we'd go on by 20 kilo between three of us. My mates, the older guys, I'd have Sherpas to carry it through the jungle so you didn't carry enough in. Yeah. Okay. you would meet them in Manikaram and and then you would divvy up your all, all your hash and you know and, and then put it in bags and then take it on your journey. But we was coming walking back one day and a little policeman jumped out from behind a um from behind a rock at the end of the road and he went, Stop, you know, and and, and he went, Passport, and I went oh, passport nay, baba, <laughs> you know, and he's gone, Oh, big problem for you. And I said, What do you mean big problem for me? He said, Oh, big problem for you, you no know, passport. He says, Come. We got to police station. I hope you like prison food. (laughs) And did you try uh, bribing him? No. Before I had the chance, he looked over my shoulder and went, you jello, jelly, yeah, Shoot us away. And I looked behind me and four guys who dreadlocks come around the corner with big backpacks on and he was on them. He was, he straight away, he thought, these are better because we No, bags are nothing with us. You know what I mean? These are better candidates. What they like to do is get you back to your hotel room because they're going to find a little bit of something and a little bit of something leads to their bribe. So we spotted these um, Norwegians or Scandinavian guys and and he thought, I'll have them. So what happens is we go to the hotel and then the next day, the hotel owner, you know what I mean, who was in on this whole deal thing, he said to me, do you want to come and have a smoke with me and my friends? And me and me mate said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he takes us down this back alley and he bangs on this door and it, this door opens. We go inside. It's really dark. Who's sitting there? The policeman is sitting there with a big pile of hash smoking a pipe for chillum. And he just looks at me and gives me a wink. <laughs> yeah, so the policeman had taken all the hash off these uh Norwegians or Scandinavian type guys, you know, took all their money, you know, and 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 the next night I'm I'm sitting in the in the same room as this policeman smoking hash, you know what I mean? And he's, he's he's like got a big smile on his face and he keeps giving us the wink, like you know, I remember you from yesterday, mate. You know how
1: how much would it go for if you're t- per kilo from, from there?
0: So a kilo of hash, this is Charas, so the finest, the best hash in the world, yeah? Um, A kilo up there would cost you 200 pounds, yeah? 200 quid. No, the kilo would cost about 100 pounds in them days, and it went for 3,500 in the UK. So you So you, you work that out, you got 10 kg
1: so so then so you obviously were you, you became experienced and in, in knowing these routes and then when you went onto the train and you got caught by that guy what happened oh, there
0: oh god i got into an altercation with the train guard because i've been hustled over my ticket and it did, wasn't going to my it was i got the train from delhi to goa and i bought it in a travel agent everyone's on the hustle so they'd sold me it to the border of goa so there was another 300 miles or something i needed to go on this train and i was trying to Reason with this train guard, and we got into an altercation and and I got abusive to him, and he was abusive to me and then he he marched off and come back with a policeman, and the policeman then went passport paperwork, what's in the bag you know, and uh <laughs> he opened the bag up and uh there was kilos and kilos of hash in there there was a big parcel of heroin, white heroin, and he just went you are big problem for you, sir big problem for you. Delhi prison for you, sir, and, and and I just kind of got my bomb bag and I opened it up and there was a thousand pound in cash in there, in 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 twenty and fifty pound notes and I just went Baba for you, Bakshish, and he kind of he kind of nodded at me, took my money and I says um, I keep the charas and he went my fucking charas and took the took it took my drugs and went that was it that was the end of it. So what I had to do is I, I got to Goa and I got some more money and I, and I got back on the next train and went back up the Himalayas and restocked.
1: So obviously money was an issue then because you were, you had the system. So once it yeah. had, and then you it would go back into your your flight pattern and do the kamikaze you run on the other side.
0: Yep. Yeah.
1: Because I remember when I when I spoke to you, uh, uh, um, you know in. the in the early 2000s, no, sorry, like 2010, 2011, is when just before kind of the, the legal highs and the MPS kind of oh God, yeah. started, yeah, but there was a big, there was a big rise in kind of like uh, GBL and some of the hypnols and stuff, and you were telling me that it, you used to be where it was sold as kind of rose water back in, and that's how it was being smuggled.
0: Oh, because no, we're talking about ketamine. Ketamine, yes. Ketamine, ketamine. Yeah, ketamine. Yeah, ketamine. You could both the ketamine in the local pharmacy. You could go and, and, and say, give me a hundred vials of ketamine, and it would come in a vial, like you know, like you see in the vets, you yeah. know, with powder in the bottom. And you know, and you could just what the people used to do, they'd get the ketamine and they would just it was before obviously all the nine eleven and stuff, so you could take water on the plane. So what yeah. they would do is just fill bottles with water and then dilute. Tons and tons and tons and tons of ketamine into the water and just carried the water through customs. It's taste-free and smell-free. That's why people were smuggling tons on on the New Age Travellers sites. All of their ketamine came from India, smuggled in in water, and then was reconstituted here. You know, what you do is you put it in a saucepan, boil it down, evaporate all the water off. And then you're left with a sludge at the bottom. You let that sludge dry and then bash it up and it turns into powder. It wasn't my thing, but, the, you know, I've seen it happen all around me, you know, because in Goa, party drugs were big, ecstasy, cocaine, amphetamines, you know, because it was the, the the dance culture was there, you know, so a lot of people would use K as well. But a lot of people smuggled K back, and it was a lot of the new age travelers or crusties, what we used to call them, they would bring back tons and tons and tons of um and also diazepam by the thousand would you could go to any get, pharmacy and buy diazepam
1: were you getting kind of like marked like in back in the uk like they were noticing your your traveling or anything did you get yeah. any indication and how long Not, was this going on for this operation that was 10 years and then yeah. what happened
0: then um i i i do you want the what happened? I came back from India in two thousand and two, and I met a girl who was doing well, the same kind of things, and we used to grow together and all that stuff. And we had a baby, and we had this young baby, you know. And I was still mixed up in selling drugs and uh, and, and that kind of stuff. And the, the child was born addicted, and it was all problematic, you know. But I'd all started, started dipping my toe in the pond of volunteering in drug services. I've been to rehab a couple of times, and I was even though I was still stuck in the world of making money and, and doing all that chaotic stuff, I still had my eye on recovery. You know, I started to kind of, my using started to become painful, you know? Um, it hadn't been painful for a number and number of years, you know, um, it started to become painful and it started to become tiresome and it, just, it became groundhog Dog Day and, you know, and, Going to India kind of saved my life a little bit, you know, because I didn't use much drugs when I was there, bizarrely, you know. I was still caught up in the transaction and the lying on beaches and, and you know, dating tourist girls and all that kind of stuff. Mm. But, you know, the, the, my drug using, you know, um, when I use, I use chaotically, you know. Um, my life sounds a lot quite glamorous, in a of beach island, flying around the world. But the true nature of my using, when I use, is on my own, desperate, injecting myself in the groin, crying to myself, all that kind of stuff, you know. Once that door closes on the outside world and I'm using drugs, I'm in a desperate, horrible, dark place, you know. And as the years went on, my using got darker and darker and darker, you know. I ended up having this baby, and I was actually drug-free at the time, but I was still growing cannabis, so I was still... Selling bits and bobs here and there, you know, and we had this baby, and I, I kind of had a, I had a relapse, and the relapse relapse led to a kind of moment of realization: I can't do this anymore. A couple of things I
1: just want to touch back on before we move yeah. on. There. Uh, one for kind of people kind of new into it. You said about inj, um, injecting to the groin. Can you just go um, and just go a little bit into detail why people go I- injected in, in, in the groin?
0: So um, yeah, back when I was a young man, we were injecting in our hands and arms and stuff like that. And um, we were injecting a lot of pharmaceutical drugs, tablets. So our veins went very fast. So our veins, we got thrombosis in our arms. So our veins shrunk away and, and, and hardened so we couldn't use them anymore. And you've got a vein in your groin. It's one of the biggest veins in your body called the femoral vein. And it's quite a dangerous place to use, but it's kind of easy access. Once you've done it a couple of times, you get a little bit of scar tissue, and it becomes then you just kind of pop a needle through it, and it becomes a very easy, viable way of injecting, getting your drugs on board. You know, and I did that for twenty years.
1: And what's some of the risks that can happen in the in, in the, some of the risks that-, that
0: can happen? Well, I nearly lost my leg in nineteen ninety two after coming out of prison. Um, I had an internal bleed; I punctured holes in my artery. So my artery was bleeding internally into my leg and um, I got something called compartment syndrome, um, which means my leg compartmentized, my thigh did. So all the blood was, I was leaking. The blood went obviously decayed within my body. My body, it was leaking that much blood in there. The body couldn't clear it. So your own body's own resources. And it, it, it kind of turned into a humongous abscess, which kind of like cut off the blood supply to my leg and, and um I was in hospital for six months, forty-two surgeries on my one leg, you know. They told my parents I wouldn't live through it and I wouldn't um they wanted to cut my leg off and uh make me comfortable because I wouldn't live out the week because I scream in the hospital damn, you know. That was my consequence, you know, and, and I and I still have them consequences today. I live my life in pain that that I've learned to manage and um I get leg ulcers and uh lots of other Granger, for the ones who get it done. You can lose your, you can, if you inject into the artery, you know, you can, you can lose your leg that way. Um, and it's there's holes painful. as well,
1: isn't there? Some people can have holes. Some people can have holes, gaping holes, that abscesses. Yeah, gaping it, right holes,
0: you know. Um, I've still got scar tissue today and I haven't used for like, coming on 18 years. Um... Also, there's a nerve there. And if you, there's it, it, the, the one side of the vein, there's the artery, and the other side of the vein, there's the nerve. And if you hit the nerve, you can lose function in your leg and your foot. And, you know, there's lots of risks involved with it. And because people inject a lot of crack and heroin nowadays, it's destroying their veins quicker. Because I was on an injectable prescription for 20 years, I think it kept, you know, I, I, I did quite well. You know, people, the damage I did in 20 years, people are doing in two. Right. So people are doing, you know, 20 years worth of damage in two years now, you know, with injecting crack cocaine and citric acid, using too much citric, citric is the drug, the the substance that's used to kind of break down the drugs into an injectable source again, because the brown heroin that comes from Asia is not really meant for injecting, but if you mix it with citric acid that will make it turn it back into a salt and, uh, and then it's able to in, be injected. And crack cocaine, it can re really solidify. You know, the, people are cooking crack cocaine. It's meant to be injected with cold water and people are you, it, cooking it up with their heroin and then it's kind of congealing back in their veins, blocking veins up, giving people deep, throm- deep vein thrombosis, which then can lead to pulmonary embolisms and you know, a lot and of nasty a- complications.
1: And also, that is because of the stigma around it. If people don't want to have kind of injecting sites on their arms, the kind of groin is a very concealed place as well.
0: Yeah, um, certain areas of, of of the West Midlands, for instance, have a big in, uh, groin injecting culture. Sandwell, for instance, m- most people inject in the groin when they when they when they run out of options. Mm. In Sandwell, we you know there was a survey done years ago in drug services, and a lot of people in Sandwell would go straight to the groin because it was cultural it's what their friends did you know and so that's and that that, no one sees it yeah yeah the only person that sees it is the person that sees you naked and this
1: is and and that's why um that like harm reduction is so important that you get Absolutely. people are doing that they get taught in the correct way and the safer way yeah. so you don't you could do that so this is the argument that you know that that's that's used quite often um i mean earlier on in the in the in our conversation we you were talking about you know you were using kind of puddle, um, uh, puddle water and yeah. etc you know was there any risks of bloodborne viruses or anything like that coming I'd to you
0: bloodborne mind? virus probably the first time i used the first time yeah because i was 15 i was at the bottom of the food chain yeah there was no such thing as needle exchange and i sat in a squat in london and about twenty people used the, syringe, the same syringe before me. Right, you know. Um, we're quite lucky that HIV wasn't prevalent at that time, you know. And um, I remember becoming ill shortly after, you know, um, pains in my right side and stuff. And I went to hospital, and they said I had a viral hepatitis that hadn't identified yet. They called it hepatitis not A, not B. You know, and it wasn't until I was in hospital in 1992 that I was the, the nurse informed me that I've. Oh, do you know you've got hepatitis C, and I said, "Well, I knew I had something called non-A non-B." <laughs> well, it's only going to so be C. <laughs> it's called <gonna be> ABC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So yeah, I, I picked up a bloodborne virus very early. You know and
1: what? And what's the what was the impact and the complications of it even to
0: this day? Um, the impact of having Hep C on myself. It's asymptomatic for a lot of people until they're 20, 30 years down the line. But the longer you have hepatitis C for, the more damage it does. I work in hep C now. That's my role. Um, uh, The longer you have hep C for, it's kind of like we call it the silent killer because it's killing you all the time and you don't know it. It's destroying your liver. So hepatitis C, hepa means liver. It's Greek for liver. And itis means inflammation, so hepatitis just means inflamed liver. The virus attacks your liver, and as it attacks your liver, it causes fibrosis, which is like mild scarring. The mild scarring, as it progresses, turns to cirrhosis, which is the part of your liver that dies away. And then the end stage of that is liver cancer. So, you know... um, having this virus in your system you may not know it for a long long time that's why we push hepatitis c testing at every opportunity for people in treatment now you know get it identified get it treated and get it cured you and know there's a, and
1: there's a hard, and there's a very high proportion of people who have been injecting um drugs and that who who have had uh, hepatitis c or or well or, or definitely suffering the complications from it
0: of all injecting drug users currently have hepatitis C. And that was higher? It was higher back then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Needle exchange has reduced that down. I'd say out of my peer group, every single one of us had it.
1: And it's it's really important around the needle exchange, around having the clean needles, because not everybody is using those needles for kind of like heroin or anything like that, but a lot of people are using... Using steroids or any or getting into the kind of the
0: fitness industry or yeah, performance enhancing drugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tanning.
1: Yep. So yeah. anybody going for fake tans? That the um, what was it called? Milan. <laughs> we used to do this. Is tan Yeah, tan And there was tan too as well. where it was the period yeah. and bleaching of the skin. Um, <laughs> the, the newer models. Yeah, well, I'm going back in my in my brain now. We used, yeah. to, we used to deliver training together for everybody. Kind of like working out what's going on. Um. But you also like one of the one of the things that you kind of bumped into celebs and stuff along along the way, is that is that fair to say when and you've and you've got one of the trademarks that you've got is actually on the side of your head, is that right? What tattoo? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> are you allowed to go into this story or not? What, your say it again? I said, are you allowed to go into the story of the tattoo? Who tattooed your head? The tattoo.
0: Oh God, I, I I worked in a tattooist when I was very young as well, you know, uh, before my drug use kind of like made it not viable for me to even hold a job down, you know. Um, and I, I I was at a tattoo convention in London, and um, one of the world's top tattooists was there, and um, I, I was obviously I was in I was in with the tattoo. Field, you know, and knew lots of people. And I was talking to him and I pointed to a, this design in the book and I said, oh, I like the look of that. And he went, Lay down there and I'll put it on your head. And I didn't really want a tattoo on my head. But being young and hugely inf- <laughs> influenced, I lay down, he shaved my head and he put this tattoo on me, you know. Yeah. And um, who did it? A guy called, um, it was Ed Hardy's partner at the time, a guy called Leo Zulueta. So, you know, in the late, sorry,
1: in the two thousand mid two thousand, everyone was wearing Ed Hardy stuff. Ed Hardy. Yeah, and you, ha- you had that design on your head before anyone, anyone knew about it. Yeah, because
0: um, some of the designs on the Ed Hardy shirts were done by Leo as well. Yeah. So, you know, Ed Hardy was the most famous tattooist in the world. Ed Hardy came over and was spending time with us. And his partner was Leo, who was the world's lead at first to do tribal tattooing. So, it's Ed Hardy's partner, and you know, and we, we were there, and 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 I was talking to Ed and pointing to these stuff in the books, and and it was Ed that said like, yeah, yeah, put it on his head, you know, and <laughs> mental.
1: <laughs> yeah, because when we met, it used to be more, used to be more like short hair. Now you're obviously losing it a little bit, but it's on the side. Yeah, the, it's it's on the cute. side. You can just see the little <laughs> bit of it there. Yeah, yeah, the Ed, yeah, there you go. Oh yeah, <laughs> that's that was always a good pub story. So then, yeah. so when we met, I, I remember when you were having sort of your your ankle problems were the main kind of. Uh, oh mate! When I saw you, uh, when we kind of got together, leg ulcers. Uh, yeah, the leg ulcers and stuff from it. So, like in in your work now, do you try and I know you go back to Thailand pretty often. Did you venture down when you were down in India and that the the and then the Himalayas? Did you go over to Thailand at that point? Yes. And what was the
0: culture like there? was that a little break, if you like? <laughs> that was your break from the work? From, from, Thailand, from, from India. You know, we'd be lying on the beach in India. Somebody's, well, I first went to kind of like a gangster wedding over there. There were some gangsters in Goa uh, who kind of run all that smuggling routes and stuff. And one of them said, my pal's getting married in Pattaya. Do you want to come? Me and my pal just went, yeah, we'll come. And we flew over to Pattaya, to Bangkok, and then down to Pattaya. Um, the gangster wedding was a bit much for us. So kind of the next morning we're lying on the beach with a hangover and I, and I, and I said, should we do one? And he went, yeah. And we just got on the bus and went back to uh, to Bangkok and then tri- traveled to um, to Chiang Mai up in the mountains and, and, uh, and then over to Koh Samui in the islands and Koh Phangan. And, you know, before the big full moon parties were in full flow, there was like, the full moon party was like 200 hippies from Goa Kind of dancing on the beach with a little speaker, you know, and yeah, and smoked yaba and uh, and used heroin there, and you know, yaba of... No, no flip flops on in the two in the morning, looking for more yaba and. Yaba their version of
1: crystal meth, isn't it? The, yeah, what yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yaba just it means crazy medicine. <laughs> that's what it. That's what it translates as, and yaba was uh, methamphetamine yep. coming from Burma. Methamphetamine tablets mixed with caffeine, so. They were sold in. I didn't see it because in the seventies, the whole of the Thai workforce worked on yaba. They were paid in yaba, so you get your daily wages in two yaba tablets for tomorrow. You know. And that and was also to get
1: them for driving at long distance driving
0: It yeah. was sold in petrol stations. So where you filled up, there was a box on the counter with yaba and a little packet. You know, it wasn't until the mid two thousands that it became the crazy drug of use and. And then the government clamped down on it and executed loads of drug dealers and stuff. And, you know, there was all YouTube videos of people being pulled out of bars and shot in their head. And, you know, similar to what they were doing in uh, in um, the Philippines recently.
1: Were you ever... I mean, I'll just coming on to the, the, the kind of punishment. Like, you were almost like one of the first waves of the, of the UK kind of that market and the routes being set up or probably even probably the second gen, I would say. Um, yeah, second gen. Would you ever were you um, ever worried about some of the punishment that if you got caught? I mean, you were living such dicey. Or were you still having the same mentality of thinking that oh, I'm
0: still not going to make it past 21? Yeah, yeah. Well, well the, 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 the parameters moved, didn't they? You know, one, I never thought I would get clean or drug free. I knew I was going to die of using drugs at some point. And my ideology was, I'm just going to live now, you know, live fast, die young, you know. And if I go to prison, I go to prison. If I get killed, I get killed. I was like that. I, I, we ended up in Kashmir in the middle of a war, you know. Um, they tried to blow up the, an Air India uh, 747 on the runway when we were there, you know. We planned to stay two weeks, but literally it was it was scary. And we we stayed there three days, you know and uh, went and had a look at the gun markets and it was just crazy there, you know. And you could hear machine gun fire at night and in the distance you'd hear big explosions going off. And yeah, so we kind of sought out danger in, in a way. Like, you know, we were warned by the Home Office not to go into Kashmir and we thought, yeah, that sounds good. You know, the Home Office is telling us not to go. We're going in, you know.
1: And did you, did you ever kind of um, think about in terms of what the 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 ramifications were, or like, in, what I mean is like, every time, as your story develops and it's getting there, it, you could feel it and it's raising the ante every single time. Did you, you know, what what were the, were you started to entertain like different drugs or different routes or expanding your, your little empire that you had?
0: No, cause we were quite happy. We, we were making a lot of money. We were making a lot of money for very little effort. You know, and a lot of my job involved lying on the beach for six months. Yeah. I was quite happy with what I was doing. You know, then I'd come back to the UK and I'd put a crop of cannabis on. Eight weeks later, there's £10,000. So then I would go back to India with that. So, you know, it was... Um, we would take um, cocaine and ecstasy to India with us.
1: And how did, you, how
0: did you smuggle that from the
1: UK to there? Inside. But inside the... <laughs> Inside. Yeah, so inside is not every suitcase, but the human body. Inside you know. the body, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, the, we can go into detail, I, 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 I think I won't, but were you ever nervous that if you got a stomachache?
0: <laughs> well, because I can remember, no.
1: No. <laughs> I, I remember once we did this readed really the stat that every bag of heroin inside prison has gone through at least six people's um bottoms bottoms yeah would you, would you <laughs> yeah. Say... yeah that's about right um yeah. okay so you, you so you become you become a dad and, and and you still had a little bit of kind of um reverberations of your of your past life coming in was there did they yeah. ever get to the point where the money is going down? You're not earning the the amount of money that you were before, and the pull yeah. to go back into the
0: past life. Um, during my the end of my using, um, obviously I left the family home and was flat out again, and I had a doctor supply me with all the drugs I needed to get by day to day. Nobody had anything to do with me. I was I kind of reached the end of the road, and and. I didn't see anyone for like nine months. And um, I still had a considerable amount of money in the bank, you know, and uh, I just potted along and, 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 and desperately trying to get back into rehab. And, and the doctor who I was um, with at that time was, was trying to go through every avenue to get me back into rehab, but i had been several times before and I'd never really engaged well and was quite obstructive and obnoxious to the funders. And um, they, they were just saying no. But then I had a meeting with Mike Quinn, um, who was one of the commissioners at that time. Um, Dr. Yates pulled some strings, my doctor, and got me a meeting with Mike, who I'd known, because I'd volunteered at the dat. You know, I spoke at conferences and stuff. And he just took one look at me and he went, oh my God, what's happened to you? And I just said, I'm a mess. I'm a mess, Mike, you know? And he went, right, where do you want to go tomorrow? And he he did a referral on the spot. And Within a week, I was in rehab again, you know? And um, all the other times in rehab, I messed about and wanted to be the guy who wanted to talk about this kind of stuff. I wanted to tell people how cool I was and the things I got up to, and I wasn't really bothered about because I didn't believe what they told me. You know, I thought I, I thought I had a problem with two substances. You know, crack and heroin, and um, I, I I didn't want to stop smoking weed. I didn't want to stop drinking. I didn't want to stop having a little sniff occasionally. You know. And for people like me, I think we had to close the door fully. And that's what they told me in rehab, and I didn't, didn't believe them. And every time I left rehab, what they prophesied for my life came true. You know, I'd relapsed. I'd have a little drink. I'd have a little spliff. And literally within a day or two, I'd have a needle in my vein again. You know, so going back to rehab for the final time in 2004, I, I, I was the student you know, I I did exactly what I was told. I read every book they told me to read. I would listen to every tape they told me to read about, listen to about recovery, you know, and by the end of my treatment, I was a house leader and looked up to and, you know, and I became that, I became the treatment guy rather than the the prison guy or the gang guy or the money guy, you know. And Um, that's where
1: I kind of met you in when you were in that, in that, in that phase where you were the, the kind of the font of knowledge, basically. And, yeah, what what works and what doesn't work? I remember,
0: right, going back to when I was in hospital in in nineteen ninety two when I was really ill. Um, a doctor came into me and they were trying to mess around with my medication, and I and I said to him, and and he's gone about morphine and methadone and all this, and I said, listen. I've gone morphine has a life of six hours. Methadone has a life of 12 hours plus a 12 hour half. Life. And, and, and I started t- t- talking clinically to him. And, you know, when I was flat out and he, he went mad and he went, you know what your problem is? You know, too, effing know too much. and threw my chart across the room and stormed out. And the nurses were all Googling, you know what I mean? I pissed off the consultant, you know. Um, I made it my business to know stuff, even when I was that chaotic guy. You know, I would read books. Mm. I would. You know, study pharmacopias. I would look at all the pharmaceutical stuff. I'd look at interactions. You know, so I've I've always been a bit of a geek. You know, so I was the drug geek. You know, and that, that's why I, I love learning and I love knowing about this.
1: There's job. a film. There's a film to be made on your life. I'm convinced of it, or at least a book. It's, it's gonna happen. It's <laughs> right, gonna when happen. When I
0: left my last job, they bought me a book to write my book in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've there you done.
1: go. There you go. So. I just want to go on to like the fact that we we met in, in during that time and you know your your help and support was invaluable from that bit and then you you moved on into kind of working into into prisons yeah what what was the envi- what was the prison environment like when you went in there com- and, and did it trigger anything uh compared to when you went back when you when you went in
0: Right. I'd, I'd worked in a really nice service, Park House, which I was part of the development of, like, you know, over the years, you know, and it, it was a really nice nurturing team with the NHS. We lost our contract to the current provider and I was kind of pushed out. So the, the trust I worked for had the prison contract. So a job became available there. I interviewed and got the job. I was quite discriminated against when I first got there. You know, everyone thought I'd be a corrupt member of staff. They thought because I was an ex-prisoner and an ex-drug user, I was the first person to be employed in HMP Birmingham who'd been in HMP Birmingham. You know, I was the first person to be a criminal with a criminal record and a drug-using record to work in HMP Birmingham. You know, and I was kind of bullied, if you like, not by the prisoners. Love me because I, I, I you know, even I, I speak a clinical language, but I also speak their language. Prisoners love me. You know, love. You know, you could put a group on. One of the other workers, no one would turn up. He put my group on, 12 people come, and they finish the course, you know, because I, I know how to interact with them. I know how to capture them. You know, staff, staff were horrible. I hated working there for the first year or two, you know, until I, I kind of cemented my place within that team and became integral to it, you know, but it was horrible, yeah, you know. Dirty looks from the staff, you know, sniping about me, you know, all that kind of stuff. And was Did that it, at me? it was kind of nostalgic? Yeah, that's what I was going to get that it was nostalgic. I used to walk onto G Wing and have a look at my cell, you know, I'd walk on, and my cell was G G36. That was my cell for six months before I was shipped out in 1990. And uh yeah that was it was I used to walk on there kind of look quite nostalgically looking there was my cell man, and then I'd think about my cellmate that got that got that didn't come out of h and b Birmingham alive you know at that time
1: and is it in terms of kind of like the drugs and gangs within there is it still is it has anything changed
0: it's calmed down a bit um I was there during the riots in in two thousand and sixteen you know and if you've walked onto the, particularly the gang wings at that time, you know, like C wing and stuff, you know, I got stuck in the middle of some really extreme violence, and and um, you know, I was thinking, how am I going to get out of this? You know, I was the only member of staff in the middle of a massive gang fight between Hansworth gangs and stuff, and and people being hit with chair legs, with nails in, and and we you carry a whistle in prison, and I blew the whistle, no officers came, just more prisoners you know, which left me in a really tricky situation, you know, and I've got, I'm trying to get out through people and people are pushing me and stuff saying, yo, why are you blowing that whistle? Yo, what are, are you doing that for? You know. And was that because,
1: and then was it because you had and a all relationship? The officers came? No, but did you have, did you buy yourself time because of the relationship you had with prisoners or if you were a different a different kind of
0: person? Right. What, from then on, when I walked onto them gang wings, I'd open the gate, walk on, and they'd give you the evil look. And I'd go, yes, you're all right, mates. You know what I mean? What's up, man? How are you doing today? You know, you, you, you had to put on a level of bravado. And then I could walk onto those wings quite easily. And, 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 and you know, I'd walk on the wing and I'd go, yes, yes, how are you doing, boss? You're you're cool, you are, boss. You know, you ain't like them other ones, you know. Because you, you have to kind of build a certain level of rapport, you know. And I've got gold teeth. I grew up in Borsal Heath, you know. Um, I'm covered in tattoos, you know, I'm not your regular kind of guy, you know what I mean? And 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 it would be a starting point. And and I always dressed dead smart, you know, and people, people would say, Oh, you used to come from the road, you did, didn't you? You know, that kind of stuff. And i would say, Yeah, I come from the road, but I I changed my life around, man, and I'm I'm doing this now. Yeah, you're all right, you are boss.
1: Was there any did any did you did you see somebody who who looked like yourself when you joined in there and did you try did you go out and try and um, give that intervention
0: yes many 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 times you know um i would try and plant seeds of recovery right you you get a head against a brick wall with most prisoners yeah. but you can see you can see desperation in some guys eyes and For me, that desperation is a sign that they're They're motivated to do, maybe looking at some change for themselves. You know, and um, we've got a guy who I got on my groups in, in the, you uh, know, who's doing really well. We have got another guy who's just in a second year of his criminal his his, his law degree. Um, you know, who was a b winger, flat out burglar. You know you get those guys don't you the ones you see a little bit of promise a little bit of desperation you know in your eyes and you can plant the seeds that recovery is possible you know and I didn't broadcast from the rooftops in there that I was in recovery myself except to the ones who needed to hear it
1: and do you think it's getting I mean like the environment's getting you said it's a little bit calmer now within but as the scene is the violence and kind of is that escalating is it worse now? Prison
0: prison's violent. Prison's violent. HMB Birmingham is a very violent prison. You know, it become very low down the uh, HMIP uh, scorecard, didn't it? You know, it's we had a new governor. It was uh, G4S lost their contract and and the, the home office retook the prison. Since the new governor's come in, he's implemented new searching procedures, and every prisoner now is body scanned. Yeah there is searching every day on the gate coming in. So the level of drug use in the prison has fell through the floor. Self-harm went up a little bit. COVID has, has made, uh, helped the prison implement a lot of changes. You know, whereas the prisoners run the prison before, now the kind of prison has taken back a little bit more control, you know. I don't think it'll ever go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, but you know, um, the prison is a lot calmer. There's a lot less violence, a lot less drug use, um, probably due to supply. So the
1: supply, so there was always a strong, um, uh, a strong sort of supply, it used to come from external people coming into the the prisons. It was
0: coming in under license recalls, were coming packed, they call it, and prison officers and guest staff like NHS staff, education staff, you know, it all came in through those routes. Drones were a, a big route for a time. Um,
1: how would they work so they would just see him just going over the um, over the wall and bang? Throwovers still happen.
0: Pigeons. No, no, pigeon, uh, like
1: pigeon dead pigeons yeah, or pigeons. tennis balls.
0: Pigeons and tennis balls, yeah. Um oranges packed with it and they use you know, like that that stick thing you throw at the ball for the dog. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'd use them to Wang it over the wall, you know. And then there was the, the the drone era when drones were coming in every night, you know. But then they've kind of implemented stuff to stop that. All the windows now have external bars, like cages, over the windows, so they can't get anything in from them. Yeah. So every, every time there's something new comes, the prison react and and try and stop that route, don't they? And and currently, every prisoner now is body scanned on the way in, so there's an X-ray machine in reception, so the prisoners are not bringing it in anymore. And there's the searching of staff. Obviously, there's still going to be a little element coming in, isn't there? You know, because you can't search everyone everywhere. But um, yeah, it, it, it's it's a lot calmer place to work.
1: So, in terms of you, like your 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 future now, in terms of how far how far you see, and you reflect it back. What 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 when you when you're looking about your kind of your life, what, what do you kind of come up with? What do you mean? I mean, like you've gone through such a adventurous sort of time in your life. You've gone through yeah. many almost different lives that you've gone through yes. in kind of decades. Like w- w- when you look back on it now, what do you what do you
0: come up with? Um, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing. You know, my life has been an adventure from as far back as I can remember. You know, it led me to some very painful and dark places. You know, but those painful and dark places have forged me into the individual I am today, you know, and yeah, I wouldn't change it for the world, you know, Um, some of the physical damage I've done to my legs, maybe I'd love to not have that, Mm. but I I accept that it's there. And I, you know, Um, yeah, I've done some mad stuff during my life, done some crazy things, you know, and getting into recovery and, and, and going to rehab and, and, Accessing the support after leaving Rehab's allowed me to kind of totally change my life around and and influence a lot of people, you know. Mm. I still volunteer for Narcotics Anonymous. I still run meetings every Thursday night, you know. So um I, I'm in a want, new
1: role of work. I just want to Sorry?
0: go I just want to touch on that. It's
1: a little bit controversial, but I just want to get your opinion on it. So you've got many people who go from like, I can't use abstinence and then you've got the harm reduction and you've been very fair in, in, in terms of knowing the value of both. Where, where do you kind of stand on it? Is it? Is, are, we in a, are we in a place within recovery that there's a home for both and everybody gets on with everyone?
0: Absolutely, I think so. I see a lot of bitterness and a lot of sniping and a lot of comments aimed at the harm reduction from the harm reduction community towards the recovery community, you know. Um, Because I've had my foot firmly planted in both camps, Mm. you know, I'm a harm reductionist in my own life. and I'm an abstentionist. So I live my life the abstinence way via a 12-step model. Yeah. That don't mean you have to, yeah. There's a lot of other avenues into recovery, and whatever one fits you, let's support you in doing it. For me, Narcotics Anonymous and the twelve-step model has helped. I tried every way of getting drug-free, getting sober, getting clean—whatever name you want to call it. That's politically correct at the moment. You know, where I come from, we call it clean. Where I work, we call it drug-free. You know, um, if you choose a different path that works for you, that's fine. You know, some people can put down heroin and crack and carry on having a little drink and a smoke or weed. Yeah. If you can do that fair play, you've reduced your harm levels. You've reduced the impact that's causing you damage. Yeah. For me, every time I put a drink in me, I ended up having a smoke of something. Every time I had a smoke of something, I ended up putting a needle in myself. You know. So narcotics taught me a new way of life. You know. And as a result of that, I I I sit here today alive and well and employed in a senior role. You know. Um, if that don't work for you, that's fine. Find a way that works. You know, if you want to go to smart recovery and 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 um, learn some CBT-based ways of changing the way you think around drugs, good for you. Get on with it, you know, and then go and live your life. And if you want to smoke a bit of weed and it's not killing you, fair play. If you want to have a little drink and it's, you're not drinking that it destroys your liver, fair play. For me, that was kind of not an option at the time. And now I don't miss it. I was at a festival yesterday backstage with all the the big stars and everything, you know, and, and everyone around me is drinking, smoking weed, some people sniffing cocaine, you know. That doesn't have to be my reality, you know. I can still go out and enjoy my life, you know, and leave it up a little bit and not get high, not lead me to that place of desperation again
1: i'm gonna bring it to a close but i ask it all my guests when i do the podcast is to um is there something that is there a bandwagon that you want to kind of jump on or jump off or is there anything else that you want to get off your chest this is kind of like the space for you to, to go into it
0: oh no i just like to say where i work now really um, I, I work for an amazing part of the NHS, and it's about bloodborne viruses, Hep C. I'm, I'm part of the Hep U Later team. It's called, and if you look on on Twitter, it's it's I think it's a really cool, catchy name. And we're going round, and we're we're kind of like um, we're kind of assisting all the UK services in micro elimination of Hep C. The World Health Organization has vowed to rid the world of hepatitis C by 2030. The UK um, public health has set a target for 2015, and we're the kind of team that performance manages everyone's data to make sure that everyone who comes into service is is tested for, for, for Hep C. Anyone who tests positive for Hep C is then given a PCR timely, you know, and then anyone who wants access to Life-saving and cure, treatment, DAAs, the new direct-acting antivirals, is giving it. So we we kind of go around the country. I'm, I'm the training officer for that team. I'm the training lead. So we are going around the country training other teams, you know, and and, and and just getting across the importance of testing everyone for hep C, you know. Everyone who's tested positive for hep C is kind of breaking down the myth that the new treatment is not the horrendous one that I went through, you know. Get everyone to eat, to get, to get tested, treated, and cured. You know, I think that that's a good message to leave with.
1: Tony, just want to say, like, I'm, I'm guessing everyone listening or watching in could understand why I was just fascinated and just listened to you constantly, and I learned so much from you. So this is like my opportunity public to publicly say a, a like massive thank you, and you know, when you've come to the my the conferences that I put on, really appreciated it, and. You
0: know, it means yep. a lot thank you Ricky it's been a pleasure <laughs> alright bro I'll catch up with you soon alright nice one mate right, bye bye